I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file sharing and personal data storage company that allows users to access their content from any of their devices. Drew co-founded Dropbox with his MIT classmate, Arash Ferdosi, in 2007. Prior to starting Dropbox, Drew ran another startup, an online SAT prep company called Accolade. He incidentally scored 1,600 on his SAT. Drew is from Acton, Massachusetts. Welcome. Thank you. There has been a great evolution in storage from storing files of paper on a shelf to burning CDs to using memory sticks to now storing things in the cloud. How does Dropbox fit into all this? Yeah, we think about the things you put in Dropbox are the things that kind of were things you would store in your house, right? So you'd open your front door, you put your mail down on the table, uh, photos on the coffee table in the living room, work documents in your briefcase, a filing cabinet somewhere with your financial and health information. All that stuff lives on servers. All that stuff now uh, lives on services like Dropbox. And so we all need our kind of digital home in the cloud. And we think of what we're building as kind of this magical home for all your most important information. From the photos on your coffee table to, you know, your photos in the cloud, there's been a lot in between. Right. Yeah, it's just a mess. Mm -hmm. When anytime some new technology comes along, the old stuff doesn't go away. You're taking all these pictures on your phone, but all your old computers, there's still photos stuck in all those places. And you still have the shoebox under your bed and the, you know, the photos on your fridge. And it's kind of up to you to kind of duct tape all this stuff together. We talk about storage in the cloud, but there are servers that are actually helping to maintain this. Where do your servers live? So there's a lot of them. They live on both the west and east coast. You know, in case anything happens on in any place, your stuff will always be safe. Since the beginning, we, we manage and buy and operate a bunch of our own servers. And then we've also used the public cloud, uh, which is refers to uh, places like Amazon. They have uh, Amazon Web Services, and they rent out. They buy a bunch of servers and manage them and, and uh, rent them out to companies like ours. And that made it really easy for us to get started because you know back then we couldn't afford to spend tens of millions of dollars on equipment, and we could just get started with a credit card. When did you first think of the idea for Dropbox? Well, it was... Uh, out of personal frustration. And one day I forgot my thumb drive. I was uh, taking a trip from Boston to New York. I justified this in my head because I was going to spend the weekend there by thinking of, oh, if I take the bus, I can have, you know, four and a half hours in each direction. And so nine hours to get all these things done. And so rush to the bus, get on there, have a seat, open up my laptop. And I paused and had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I just knew that I had left my little thumb drive with all my company stuff on it back at home. And this was these were the days before the iPhone and and kind of thing where if you didn't have anything to do, you really didn't have anything to do. So I had four and a half hours to think about how disorganized I am and and I'm like, I never want to have this problem again. Now there's a lot of like myth founding stories. Is that actually what happened? Or had you been kind of marinating on versions of this even before that momentous epiphany? Well, I had at the time there are all kinds of other services that claim to do this on paper. At MIT I had hacked together a bunch of little tools to try to help me manage this. 
But it was really that bus ride where the first lines of code, I started typing in the first lines of code. Now, you applied to Y Combinator, which is a seed accelerator or an incubator uh, that uh, in exchange for equity, they give you now roughly, I think, $120,000 to help you get your business started. They were a little leaner than we. <laughs> they were. It was more like $15,000. Like $15, right. Yeah. Paul Graham said to you, well, you need to find a co-founder if we're going to accept you. Right. Now, you had had a, co- a co-founder prior. Uh, he was a Stanford grad, but he couldn't join you because he had a friend who was starting like a competing technology. So you went to Arash, who had gone to MIT, but you didn't know him at MIT. How did how did that it's happen? Kind of a, yeah, long story. Uh, a little bit of co-founder musical chair. So it turned out, as you said, I had a bunch of people who would have been great, uh, but just timing wasn't right. And I was just complaining to anyone who had listened that I'd need a co-founder and what happened was a, a friend of mine who I'd also met at MIT named Kyle, he knew Arash. And he's like, you guys should really talk. And so we got together in the student center. I think there was a coffee house on the second floor. And now in retrospect, it's kind of crazy because we spent maybe a sum, like a total of a couple hours together before completely jumping in. And he dropped out of MIT. Yeah, it was wild. So you and Arash uh, completed Y Combinator, and that led you accidentally to another person named uh, Penjman Nozad. Yeah, Penjman Nozad. And he was talking Farsi to Arash because they both happened to be Iranian, and he was taken with your technology. And he was kind of a pivotal person for you very early on because he introduced you to Sequoia, to your first venture capital. Yeah, it was wild. He came, uh, Pejman came running up to Arash after our demo at Y Combinator, but we hadn't really heard of him, but he was very persistent and convinced us to come down and we'd type in the address and we'd part, we'd go down to Palo Alto on University Ave and, and we'd get out of the car and we're like, oh man, we're already running late. This is the wrong place. This is some like rug gallery. But we'd go inside and we're like, hey, we probably have the wrong place, but it's Pejman here. The receptionist's like, oh sure, c- come back here. And you know, you look around, it's just rugs. Um, but we go through this like secret back doorway into this boardroom and we sit down, they serve us Persian tea, we walk mm-hmm. him through a demo uh, and next thing we know he's introducing us to Sequoia. Um, he came with us to the first pitch. It was his family's rug company that he was operating from and he actually said to Sequoia, oh yes, you know, they're talking to other venture capitalists who want to invest to just move things along. And Michael Moritz from Sequoia shows up at your apartment one Saturday morning to say, here is your $1.2 million. <laughs> is that is that accurate? More or less, yeah. They we we go to Sequoia on a Friday, and I get a phone call that night saying, "Hey, uh, you know, we really like you guys. Next step is usually to have a partners meeting on Monday, but Mike isn't going to be there. Can he come visit uh, on Saturday morning?" And I'm thinking, Mike, Mike, and I was like, "Oh God, yeah, Mike Moritz, mm-hmm. who's like the godfather of Sequoia." And yeah, next thing you know, he's in our living room. Our mm-hmm. boxes literally aren't even unpacked. Mm-hmm. And we're show, walking him through uh, a Torah Dropbox. I want to go back to your Y Combinator application for a moment, because uh, we're talking about raising capital. And they ask you about that on the application. You know, if somebody's interested in buying your company, you know, what would you do? And you'd said, I'd rather, I'd rather see the idea through, but I'd probably have a hard time turning down a million dollars after taxes for six months of work. Right. But then Steve Jobs offers you Nine digits in 2009. How did you come into contact with Steve originally? Dropbox was kind of on their radar. Because you had hacked their system. Uh, the team at Apple had gotten in touch because we did some 
kind of crazy technical acrobatics with the operating system. And so we did this kind of kind of open heart surgery on the, this thing called the Finder, which is what shows you your files, um, which is a technically very difficult thing to do. And, and so they were confused. They're like, how did you guys do that? And we were thinking, why are you asking us? Like, you guys, you aren't, you get, aren't the people who do that like 100 feet away from you? Mm-hmm. Um, that was what started things. And then they wanted to have conversations about maybe buying the company and eventually kind of move up the food chain uh, to Steve. What surprised you about the encounter? Our, our meeting with Steve was really cordial. And, and the encounters usually fell into two buckets. You either got chill Steve or very angry Steve. Fortunately, it, it was the former. He's just like, look, you should join us. And we said, look, we're huge admirers of everything you've done, but we're really having a great time building this company. I'm sure you understand. Uh, and uh, that's when I thought he'd get upset, but he started taunting us a little bit and saying all these reasons why it wouldn't work or you know, it was unlikely to work and how they were going to have to compete with us and kill us and these kinds of things. But what was fun about it was that it was all kind of done in 15 minutes, and he spent the next... 45 minutes just talking to us about entrepreneurship and his path and you know, I was asking him all these questions about why would why did he come back to Apple and he didn't have to do that. And P.S. he comes out with iCloud which is a competitor right, that, <laughs> to Dropbox but you knew it was coming because he told you he was coming right. out with, with a cloud-based solution similar to yours. And even at the time you know your customer base wasn't obviously what it is today. You have over 300 million users Right. But at the time, it was more like 2 million? It's probably about 2 million. And you acquired those uh, those customers in kind of quirky ways. Uh, one was uh, with referrals, that if a, if a user uh, referred a friend, that they got more storage for free. Yeah. And that was kind of taking a page out of PayPal's playbook. Right. right. If I tell you about Dropbox, you get some free space, I get some free space. We found that that of all the things we tried, that was really effective. Um, and people try to collect space, kind of like points, even if they didn't use it. That quickly became the primary way that people found out about Dropbox. You also made a video in the middle of the night uh, demonstrating the service. Very simple. That really resonated mostly with the tech community. Right. So uh, it was this quick video just narrating the experience of Dropbox. But what we did was we put all these little Easter eggs in the video that people who... Uh, who frequently went to sites like Reddit or Dig, um, things that that community would understand. And so I learned that from a book called Guerrilla Marketing, which is Mm -hmm. how do you reach people when you have no money? Um, Mm -hmm. And it just took off. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people visited in the first day. 75,000 people signed up to try Dropbox. It was literally overnight that we built our critical mass. By the way, you said you read it in a book called Guerrilla Marketing, which I'm guessing you read on the roof of your fraternity at MIT, uh, where you got your uh, default M- MBA. Yes. And which I'll get to later. Um, but I want to talk about that video because as I was watching the video, I saw some like very funny names for files laying around. Like you had one file called "People Have No Idea Why They're Doing What They're Doing." <laughs> Did you make up these file names? Yeah, yeah. Even if you weren't interested in Dropbox. Something like the something in there might catch, catch your attention. So uh, there are all these funny file names. There's uh, XKCD comics. There's a picture of Tom Cruise jumping on a couch. There's uh, references to Obama. He was campaigning back then. We found that it worked. So where do you get your sense of humor from? <laughs> I guess that's a good question. I think you know my uh, my mom has a great sense of humor. My, my both of my parents are are pretty light hearted and funny. 
I have to admit, I kind of fell into using your service because when I was downloading photos from my iPhone one day, Dropbox kind of appeared and I almost had to use it. Now I'm locked into you forever because even though I had your service for free initially, I now have to pay you monthly? Mm-hmm. Monthly, yearly. So you are a Trojan horse in a way. You know, on the one hand, I'm grateful because I know, okay, my photos are safe in addition to the other places I store it. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm going to have to pay this service for this service ongoing. And that's obviously your hope. Right. How do you navigate that? What percent of the people who use Dropbox pay for the service? Most of the users are free users. Um, but obviously, that's how that's how we make the model work, is, in, is that if you need more space, you can subscribe. But we have to earn that. And so we're always doing more to make the experience better. And hopefully, when you look at your credit card statement, it's one of the things that makes you happy and not sad. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox. We'll hear more from Drew coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. Drew graduated from MIT in 2006, and before starting Dropbox, he founded an online SAT prep company called Accolade and created a poker bot, which helps you win at online poker. Who knew? That's right. Are you a poker player? I am. Not a great poker player. Was this like a, a for-profit endeavor or just something that you were kind of having fun reverse engineering software on a, you know, a computer one day? It was a little of both. So I, I love poker, but what was appealing is I, since I was little, I've always loved taking things apart, you know, whether it's online poker or, or all kinds of things. I was able to figure out sort of the inner workings of how the poker app worked, and I was able to create something where the mouse would move itself and click and figure out what's going on with the game and the artificial intelligence to play. But then, unfortunately, in 2006, poker became illegal or more illegal. And so, you know, I thought to really scale this out would be a lot of different felonies you'd have to commit. Mm -hmm. So I decided to put my attention elsewhere. There's an image or a story I've heard about you going up to New Hampshire to visit your family in their cottage. You have a car full of your computers and wires to work on this poker bot. Can you tell me about just what that looked like? Yeah. So we have a little place in New Hampshire on a lake. And, you know, most normal people like go swimming and canoeing around and things like that. And, you know, I drive by and you know, my mom's like saying, like says hello, and I'm dragging three monitors out of my trunk and setting them up on, uh, it's like if I put them on the stove and I was hooking everything up and my mom was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but she knew, this is one of many kind of schemes and projects I've had. What was your mother's view of that sort of ingenuity? She She's always found it just funny and, you know, just entertaining to watch all of all my, and my, me and my siblings. My parents, I'm, I'm really lucky, and they've always been supportive of everything I've done. They find all of this just pretty funny. What do your parents do? So my mom, uh, she just retired. She was a high school librarian mm-hmm. um, at my high school, and my dad is a staff engineer at Draper Lab in Cambridge. I heard that you've been coding since you were five years old. That's right. What, is that, what does that mean? How does a five-year-old code? So... I was lucky, and when I was in diapers and sort of running into the living room, I had a my dad had 
bought a PC Junior. And so I would, even before I could really read or do anything, I was kind of mashing the keys and uh, eventually got to the point where my dad was able to show me how to play games and and write my first lines of code. Did you get outdoors a lot, though, as well? Yes, yes. We were, lim- we were My siblings and I were limited in our computer time, so we'd have to take turns and be normal mm-hmm. <laughs> for the rest of the time. We alluded to this at the beginning, uh, but your mom was a librarian. And, and did it kind of resonate with you that what you're doing is kind of a, a later form of library work? We think about that a lot. Uh, we store a ton of information in Dropbox, as you can imagine, with hundreds of millions of people using the service. And and every day, people store probably dozens of libraries of Congress. Mm-hmm. This is every day. I want to talk about a speech that you gave at MIT. You talk about the circle of five, which basically uh, is the five people in your life you spent most time with. Can you describe that briefly? So I think there is a quote I read somewhere that you're the average of the five people you sp- uh, that you spend time with the most. It's an interesting observation for me because it prompted me to do a lot of different things. It prompted me to move out to San Francisco because that's where that's kind of what Hollywood is to the entertainment industry. Silicon Valley and San Francisco are to internet companies. And when I think of what uh, some of the most important, sort of in retrospect, what some of the most important things I've done has really been going to places like MIT surrounding myself with people that push me in sort of friendly competition. And one of those people uh, for you was Adam Smith, who uh, was a a classmate of yours from MIT. And you say that you would code in your boxers (laughs) at your fraternity because the air conditioning didn't work. And all of a sudden, you know, he's getting serious and he's getting venture capital and he's getting flown around in helicopters. And that was just the kick in the butt that you needed. Can you describe that? Yeah. So Adam started a company, but almost exactly a year before me and we would spend the summer coding together and he was working on his company and I was working on my first company but very quickly uh, after that summer he moved out to California and next thing I knew I get this phone call from him saying hey this investor Vinod Kosla is going to give me five million dollars and Vinod Kosla for those who don't know is the founder one of the co-founders of Sun Microsystems he's this really legendary character in, in the valley and uh, he has a big venture capital firm. And so I was just shocked. I mean, I was super happy for him. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not getting publishers clearinghouse size checks. <laughs> and this is the friendly competition you're talking yeah. about. In addition to talking about, you know, the circle of five, uh, you talk about the tennis ball. What is that? When I was working on my first company, after a while, I sort of lost steam um, and I thought something's wrong with me or like, why can't I work hard? But then actually the poker bot was the project that reminded me that I can, that I was, I was obsessed with that thing. And when I think of that kind of obsession, I thought of our dog growing up, uh, Whimsy, when, when you would throw a tennis ball, she would just go bounding after it, like bashing through stuff, just kind of tongue hanging out, just looking a little bit crazy. And when I think about people who have done really amazing things. It's really kind of that obsession. And and that's what I recognized when I started working on Dropboxes. This is a problem I can be really excited about for a long time. Even though you're young, you're also mindful of kind of your numbered days. And, you know, you you read somewhere that you have basically 30,000 days to live. Uh, So this, I remember this one night right after moving to San Francisco, reading that, yeah, that you live for 30,000 days. And, you know, at first I'm like, okay, this is like a clinically (laughs) obvious fact. Um, but on a whim, I just opened up the calculator and 
and uh, and I typed it in, and I'm like, oh my god, like I was 24 at the time or something, and, and I'm like, I'm like 9,000 days down, almost a third of the way through life. That was just kind of a shock to me that, you know, every day we kind of get a ticket until you don't, and so it really caused me to think about how how do you make every day count. So what's an example of of how that influences what you're doing? For a lot of life, you spend your time like checking boxes and like getting ready to do things. And uh, when I look at a lot of my friends, a lot of them may have wanted to start a company at some point, but they kind of get trapped. They basically spend all these years getting ready to start a company. And then before they know it, they've got kids and a mortgage and they just don't have the flexibility they had. Instead of trying to get ready, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to do this. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. You mentioned in your application to Y Combinator that you were in a crowded, hostile, competitive environment and that there were lots of companies trying to do what you were doing. And I actually appreciated your candor in the application. You know, you're saying, yeah, you know what? There's not a lot of barriers to entry, but what makes us different is that we're going to execute carefully. What made you think you could do it better or execute better than others? And why were you not daunted by going into such a crowded sector? What we would say to investors is like, look, if, you know, if any of these things worked, <laughs> like I wouldn't be here. I'd just use that. Tom Cruise in Minority Report, do you really think he's going to be like carrying a thumb drive around right? or like logging into his Gmail to pick up the thing he had like emailed himself? Mm-hmm. Like obviously your stuff would just follow you around. And mm-hmm. that's not our idea. That idea has been around since my parents were kids. Um, but none of us had that. Uh, we had it sort of at school, but then you graduate and it's like back to the Stone Age. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, my, I'm my own IT guy. There, there are a lot of startup ideas that are kind of like that, where it's a terrible idea. Like mobile was like that for a long time. It's just this graveyard until one day, you know, the iPhone comes along and it just works. Or music startups, you know, just didn't work, didn't work, didn't work. Then you have Spotify and Pandora. And so I think if, if the problem is still unsolved, it doesn't really matter how many competitors there are. Because, though, of the competitive space, the costs are so low, and you talk about file sharing just being chapter one of what you're doing. Sure. You're constantly having to innovate where you're, you're going beyond just being that file sharing service. Well, our space is evolving, and mm-hmm. it's like any other technology. So, I mean, think about your first cell phone. In the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, I can be in my car, and I can be talking. This is like magic. And you're like, okay, how many minutes do I have for my phone calls? Now cell phones do much more than just phone calls. Dropbox is kind of like that, where it's like, oh, I can have my stuff with me wherever I am. I can access it from anywhere. How much space do I have? Now everybody knows that the storage is just an ingredient, and Mm -hmm. it's a means to an end. But what people are really doing is they want to have everything in one place. They want to share. They want to collaborate. They want to get work done. And so those, those are the real problems we're solving. And and things like sync or storage, we don't even really use those words that much because what we're really trying to do is solve the underlying problems. You originally did not have the URL dropbox.com. It was getdropbox.com. And you even started with Evenflow as the name of the company. Can you tell me the story about how you acquired the domain name? It yeah, getting the domain there. name was kind of a crazy... Because somebody else owned yeah. it. Yeah. So uh, we didn't have dropbox.com in the beginning. We had getdropbox.com. Get so kind of a budget <laughs> domain name. How much did you pay for Dropbox ultimately? Uh, it's we, we have to keep that secret, unfortunately. But what happened was there was this guy who lived in Pleasanton, uh, which is near San Francisco. And uh, for y- literally years, I would for the first couple of years of starting the company, I would call him and be like, hey, you know, we're, we're, we have an idea for this thing that we want to build. 
we see that you have Dropbox.com. Can we work something out? And he would say no every time. He's like, and we're like, why? And he's like, oh, I have a project. Uh, and it was clear after call three, four, five, ten that there was no project. And uh, eventually, we got so frustrated that we go downstairs, go to the convenience store, like buy the most expensive bottle of forty dollars champagne <laughs> we could find, and uh, and get in a zip car and drive to his house. Uh, and ring the doorbell, and he's a little shocked, but the crazy thing, he was an entrepreneur, too. And so he sat us down. We tell him a little bit more about what we're doing, and he's, he's like, this is interesting. Let me think about it. And we're like, this is really exciting, awesome. We'll give you stock. We got great investors, all these things. I'm trying to get him interested, and he's like, I'll talk to you in a couple of days. We're like, we'll be back on Monday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, we come back. We're like, you know, what do you think? He's like, no, I'm just going to hang on to it. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, you know, like, bequeath it to your children. Like, what is the end game here? And he was just totally unreasonable. And what happened was he ended up putting all these ads on it that would confuse our users. So we actually ended up sort of, you know, rattling our swords and filing a a lawsuit for trademark infringement because it was actually causing confusion. Our, Our users were going to clicking on these ads and he was making all this money off of confusing people. And so you can't do that. So uh, eventually we got back in touch with him. We're like, look, you know, and neither of us wants to be in, sort of embroiled in something like this. And finally we were able to, he was able to sell it to us. And he probably should have taken stock. He sold it for cash, probably worth $100 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just a lot, right. paid him a lot less. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox, a file hosting service that allows you to store, share, and access your personal data among any of your devices. In addition to like customer acquisition and getting venture capital, what was one or two key pivotal moments in the progression of Dropbox in the early days? Really getting uh, people to understand how to use the product. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, we could see in the numbers that a lot of people would sign up and not start using it, um, which is always puzzling. And literally in a given day, you would see a note from someone saying, hey, this is like a godsend. This is the simplest, best thing ever. Uh, and the next email will be like, what is wrong with you guys? You, you need you MIT nerds. Like mm-hmm. you need a PhD to figure this thing out. It's totally impenetrable and I, and I hate it. And so what we did was we, we went on Craigslist and offered like 30 bucks or something if you would come in and and try Dropbox and, and we just put a camera in there. I had a bunch of music equipment so we would record people uh, just trying out the product and we found all of these hidden things that were these stumbling blocks and it was really simple. We're just like, hey, have a seat. Here's an invite. Here's an invitation email to Dropbox. Go from here to sharing a file with this email address. Zero of five succeeded like they all like failed with prejudice. Like most of them didn't even figure out how to get the thing installed. Is that because of a trouble in the coding? Bugs, I, in, the, bu- bugs in the coding? You know, it's just, it's just kind of unexpected stuff. You know, when, after you install Dropbox, really in, in a sense, it just puts you into this empty folder. Uh, and the only interaction you can have with it is through this little icon in the corner of your screen. And so people didn't notice the icon. They didn't notice that we were putting the folder there. Uh, they were totally baffled as to what this thing was. Uh, and so after that, we made a list of like 80 things that were confusing uh, that we didn't even rec- didn't realize until you know, they're, they're all obvious in retrospect. But mm-hmm. um, And then we just kind of grinding through them. That really helped to enhance the ease of use. Yeah, which... it was a pivotal moment for us because I think it's really hard to see through your customer's eyes, right. especially if you're, you know every facet of every line of 
code and know exactly how the thing works. You know, you're almost like screaming through the screen, like just click, it's right there. How can you not see it? What are some examples of anecdotes of people actually having success with this service? I think it's really amazing to me how much it sort of feels like it's Dropbox has become part of the fabric of of how we do all kinds of things. And, you know, everything from, you know, SNL, you know, watch the 40, 40th anniversary SNL episode, that's produced in Dropbox. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you turn on music and pretty much every musician I talk to uses Dropbox uh, or National Geographic, like all the you know, flipping through the beautiful photos they have. That's all in Dropbox. Now, when you say they're using Dropbox, so they're working collaboratively with other people on the files, on the content. Right. And so they're moving big files around. They're collaborating. Um, What are other examples? Someone emailed in. They're like, hey, we use Dropbox uh, at this hospital, and it got flooded, and all of our patients' records were destroyed. But we had a backup in Dropbox, so it literally, like, saved people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, To more mundane or just sort of off-the-wall stuff, to our first uh, head of marketing was here in New York and visiting her hairdresser. And they're making small talk. She's like, oh, where do you work? And uh, Julia's like, I'm at Dropbox. And the hairdresser like dropped her stuff. And she's like, I love Dropbox. It's completely changed my life. And Julie's like, Wait, like what? <laughs> you know, the hairdresser, you know, makeup artist, not really the first target market we'd think of. And, she, and Julie's like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I, I, I do all this production work for this movie. We have to shoot all the scenes out of order. And I got to run around with a clipboard writing down, like, your hair is here and you're wearing this earring and your bracelet and, you know, your sleeves are up. Um, and it's a huge pain because I can't get anything wrong. Um, but now all I do, I have an iPad. Mm-hmm. All the pre-production footage is in Dropbox. I just see, and when I want to see what were you wearing in the video, the scene before this, I just look at the scene before it. And it's completely saved, you know, hours and hours and hours of my life. Never would have occurred to us right. <laughs> that we're, like, creating, like, hairdresser workflow software. Mm-hmm. And where do you store your data? Oh, my God, it's all in Dropbox. All? Yeah, as much as I can. No iCloud? So for, like, find my iPhone... Uh, I, you know, I use iCloud. You know, really all of us are going to end up using all of these services, and that mm-hmm. creates a new problem. Like, mm-hmm. I need, like, a cloud to mm-hmm. connect my clouds. You love music. How long have you been playing the guitar? Uh, since the senior year in high school. Your band Angry Flannel performs from, from time to time. Yes. Why the name Angry Flannel? We basically had all gotten together. We didn't know each other that well, and we were bickering over the name. And um, we had interviewed a lot of bad singers. And I think afterwards, and everybody's all emotional and I'm like 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 what are we here like angry flannel or something and it stuck I had a chance to track down Eddie Vedder who was the lead singer of Pearl Jam they're investors in Dropbox so he he liked the name he approved and <laughs> speaking of Pearl Jam Dropbox was originally called Evenflow which is a Pearl Jam song yes tell me about that I've been a big Pearl Jam fan for a long time and uh, we were worried because dropbox.com wasn't available if I wasn't going to put Dropbox, I had to put something in. So I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan, and the and the first name of the company or incorporation certificate still says Evenflow Inc. And in addition to Pearl Jam being an investor, you too is an investor. Yes. Do you secretly wish you were a rock star? I think that would be a pretty good path. <laughs> you know, if I could take a year and like tour or be part of something like that, that would be really fun. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Drew Houston, co-founder of Dropbox. Coming up, we'll meet Berta Gonzalez-Nieves, co-founder of Casa Dragones. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>